Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Carvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on your radar this week, Carvin. All right. Well, we're going to do Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas. Those are the two conflicts going on uh, right now. But the I've, apparently I've, the, the next story is usually my big news story of the week. So I'm going to start doing that, I, I think, because the big news story of the week was Navalny. Has died in a Russian prison. Hmm. Uh, it, we're going to talk a lot about Russia in this podcast because they were wiling out all over the place. Because um, wa- the Wagner Group has uh, because they tra- know they're just going to get sanctioned, and they also know yeah. that we're cutting back our funding to Ukraine, and that's obviously affecting their ability to continue this fight. And you know they're feeling really good about their their place right now i think i think so and the more the more the west sanctions russia the better their economy becomes yeah, no, did you see that yeah <laughs> their economy is actually flourishing kind of yeah it's, what the uh, heck? it's what we claimed from the very beginning you can't just sanction them into a defeat you right you gotta actually do stuff um which hmm. which they're not doing but and they're um, still not going to do right yeah uh, we're also going to talk, uh, going to bring Africa into the conversation because although the Wagner Group has a new name, they're under a new name and they're now state controlled by the Russian state, uh, by the Russian Federation. They are, those troops under the new name are still in Africa and they are still doing work for the Russian Federation within Africa. Uh, we'll talk about the Houthis for a brief second because uh, for the first time, the Houthis have used an unmanned underwater vessel against U.S. naval forces. We'll get into is the it, significance of is that. Is it like those Amazon, like, self-driving ice chests that drive yeah, around some of the shopping centers here? I've seen some of the pictures of it. It's worse yeah. than that. It looks like oh. there's a little string attached to it that moves I, it around. <laughs> like somebody, it works. Somebody's pulling fishing line to <laughs> <laughs> reel it back in. Um, I haven't seen pictures of this. So I'm going to have to look that up for sure. Very curious. They're, they're great. I mean, ingenuity. Yeah. Hey, got to use what you have. Got to use what you have. Yep. I, I agree with that. And then we're going to get into the China-Russia-North Korea tripartite. Okay. Well, I don't know what that is, but can't wait for you to explain that. Yep. But first, we need to talk about one of our listeners. Give a little shout out to one of our listeners. Yes. Gave us a very sweet message. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Clay, I won't say the whole name. Yeah. Um, but 
Clay is a listener, and so I know you're listening right now. We really do appreciate it. It really keeps right. us going, um, and we just love interacting with with everybody. I mean, that's a part of this is seeing other people who are talking to other people who are you know just as passionate as we are about some of these topics, um, and then to get other um, you know ideas or other events that are going on that we might not be in tune to that that other people, especially. Like our friend Cole in in New Zealand, who continues right. to to keep contacting us and sending us nice me- messages, but also sending me intel that he's getting uh, <laughs> from from the Indo Pacific. So I really appreciate that. Is Clay in Intel? Um, I don't know. Uh, Clay, oh. let me know. Okay, I thought that's what you were implying, but maybe I misunderstood that. But anyways, thank you, Clay. Your message was very sweet, and yeah, that's... we're glad ever- that you're loving the new format for the newsletter. Yeah, I'm trying not to give too much information because I don't know. Yeah. We didn't exactly say that we were going to be mentioning him on this podcast. So right. I'm just, you know. We'll stick to first names. And... We'll stick to first names, stick to vague, vague details. Yep. No identifiable and... features. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, thank you so much again. <laughs> Let's get to what we need to talk about because we have a lot to get to. Um, what is the latest coming out of Ukraine? It's not looking so good for Ukraine at the moment, is it? It is not. So as we touched on last week, Avdivka uh, has been taken over officially by Russian forces. That gives Ukraine a massive loss leading up to the two-year anniversary of Putin's special military operation or his invasion of the eastern portion of Ukraine. And it gives Putin a massive win coming up on the two-year anniversary and elections coming up. So, uh, you know, things are, are coming up Putin these days. Now, officials say that Ukrainian troops are keenly aware of the Russian forces that are amassing in Donetsk, which is in the area of Divka. Um, And so what they're thinking is that this is indicating a potential continuation of the offensive, even more Western. So it's a worrying development, and it may suggest that Russia is ready to move West towards Kiev. Well, with Ukraine feeling the heat from Russia's advances from the West and the fact that Western allies have obviously been reevaluating their continued support for Ukraine's war effort, have we officially moved from a stalemate to the precipice of a Russian victory? So we're we're not there yet. Okay. Um, okay. But I, I, I will say that this is now a war of attrition. This is what Russia wanted. If it wasn't a swift victory into Kiev, this is what Russia wanted as a secondary. It's a war of, of attrition because it benefits Russia. They've got more troops to throw at it. They've got more equipment to throw at it. Um, and they were banking on the West giving up and not continuing their support for Ukraine. But but there is help on the way. So Ukraine is set to deploy a few newly trained F-16 pilots, which could give Ukraine a slight air advantage in the war. Well, that um, obviously would be welcome news for the Ukrainian fighters. What can you tell us about the program that trained these pilots? So the, the training program was actually conducted by the Arizona National Guard. It's the 162nd Fighter Wing in Tucson. Um, that began in mid-October of this past year. Yeah. So it took a few months. Which we said it would. That, right. That even yes. though they were getting these... Um, this air, these aircrafts, obviously, they had to train the pilots on how to use them. Yeah, we talked about that last year at the very beginning. Um, I believe that was what March or April time frame, right? Um, 
And like I said, the, the training process typically takes several months because they, they need to know. So first of all, they have to speak English. You have to, or at least read English in order to fly the aircraft to, you know, see all the devices and, and read everything. So that's one part um, to become proficient in these. Now, now that they're close to fully trained, um, it is possible that we could see some advances by the Ukrainian military if they start another counteroffensive. So will all of the pilots be deployed at once when this portion of training is complete? So um, this is just the first wave of pilots. So those pilots will all be deployed. I believe it's four pilots. Uh, so that usually means two aircraft are, are going to be utilized. How many um, aircraft did we send them? Do you remember? Uh, I, I want to say it was six. I don't remember. I, I, I shouldn't speculate. Yeah. Um, but okay. it was a few. Check, check. Look it up real quick. All right. Time. We, can go we got time. some we got some time here. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like from reporting they're getting as many as sixty, six zero F sixteens. Um Okay. Well I But mean, that's not just the US one, so Norway sent some. Oh, okay. Um, you know, other countries sent some others. So Okay. Yeah. So do you think this lull is mainly because they're trying to get their pilots trained? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, you gotta have all the, the pilots trained. Um, cause you can't fly them without that. And like, like I said, so for your first wave is four Ukrainian pilots. There's a second group of four Ukrainian pilots that started, uh, in January. Um, so look at the timeline there, October to February was the timeline for the first wave. So you're looking the same amount for January, push those months out for that second wave. And a third group is actually doing that English language training, that prerequisite mm-hmm. for flying the F-16s. Um, so they will be the next wave. So all these pilots are going to be deployed in stages. And once fully operational, I'm going to say again, it could turn the tides because they're going to get, with the F-16s, you're going to get air superiority in Ukraine's direction. Well, I know there is a lot more to get into with Russia and Ukraine, but instead I want to get into the Israel-Hamas conflict before we deep dive into what Russia has been doing, the pot they have been stirring yeah. So what is the latest in Gaza? All right, not not good news. Right. So still no good news on the geopolitical front. Um now is- Israel issued a deadline threatening a ground operation in Rafah if all hostages aren't freed by March 10th. Um now as we have covered since the beginning of this conflict, the situation in Gaza has been just a tragedy since the beginning. Um but this new ultimatum has actually intensified the pressure on negotiations because they have to agree to the ceasefire to release the hostages. Um, and Israel says if it's not done by March 10th, they're going in to do that offensive in Rafah. And that is also because we're about we're less than a month away from Ramadan, which is a holy month for for Arabs and for Muslims and the, the Islam religion. That mm-hmm. adds yet another layer of complexity. And you may ask, when it when does Ramadan start? Well, let me tell you, March 10th, Ramadan starts. So you can see uh, Israel is saying, if you release the hostages, we will not go on the offensive during Ramadan. But if you right. do not release the hostages by that point. We are not going to respect your religion, yep. your holy days or anything. Yep. Okay. You don't respect our people. Is what they would be saying is what Israel. Yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you um, for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's not me, you know me. Yeah, yeah, that's not you. Um, 
Now, all of this has a, a lot of Arab leaders outside of Gaza very concerned about the potential for further unrest within the Middle East. Okay, so where do we stand in the ceasefire negotiations? Well, so the UN held a vote for a ceasefire agreement. I believe that was put up by Liberia. Um, and the U.S. vetoed that. This uh, has been. Of course we did. Right. So it's been the norm in right. UN discussions to veto. Uh, very similar to Russia and China vetoing amendments that condemned them or asked, you know, hey, Russia, you should have a ceasefire in Ukraine and China vetoed that. So it's very right. similar to that. Did um, the U.S. state what prompted their decision to veto this time? Uh, can you give us some insights on how this has been received by the international community? Not well, I'd wager. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be a smart decision to just veto and then let that just stand on its own right kind of need a and 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 how all of this comes about especially with diplomacy and and within politics is they know they're going to veto it and they have a, a speech writer write something up to <laughs> some make a speech yes to the un yeah Right. So here's what they some BS. Yeah. We're just what they <laughs> Let's just say something that sounds good and it like barely even explains their reason for their decision. Barely right. covers it. They have lawyers look at it so they can't be you know, right. condemned for something else or whatever. Right, uh, but right. so just to answer the question, the U.S. said, that the veto was motivated by concerns that the resolution could jeopardize ongoing negotiations between Israel and Hamas. Um, and the that ceasefire was one that they wanted to put an end to the conflict, or the U.S. says they want to end the conflict and return all hostages. Um, they don't want just a ceasefire. They want a complete end. So that was the, the reason for the veto. Okay. Um, now, you ask how the international community sees it. It has drawn some stern condemnation from U.S. allies. Um, so the White House right now is having to reevaluate its approach to this crisis. And I say the, the White House because, you know, they, they stand alone in supporting Israel right now. <laughs> um, and there's, so there's a lot of pressure put on the White House to change that and give more humanitarian aid to Gaza. Um, the U.S. did put forth their own proposal but there is still work to be done. And that proposal was to end the war and return all the hostages before that March 10th deadline. Um, one of the main points of contention um, is the linkage between a temporary ceasefire and the release of hostages by Hamas. Um, they, they want the hostages released and they don't want a temporary ceasefire. And there's some back and forth about that, even from Israel, who doesn't want a temporary ceasefire. Um, now, while the U.S. draft resolution emphasizes the importance of hostage release, pro-Israeli critics argue that it actually grants Hamas undue leverage in future negotiations. Well, amidst these tensions in the U.N., how are boarding, bordering nations responding to this crisis? Well, obviously, they're all closely monitoring the situation because those borders, um, they're, they're going to need to secure those borders as more and more uh, migrants come through. And so Egypt is actually particularly concerned about the potential for further displacement in Gaza. Um, and then they have this looming threat of a ground offensive in Rafah, which we talked about last week. There's a Rafah Egypt, there's a Rafah Gaza. So that's a border right there. 
um, that uh, they are expecting thousands of people to try to push through if this offensive starts. Um, and so with that looming threat, there are fears of a massive humanitarian catastrophe within the country of Egypt, actually. Well, let's get into the Rafah discussion. As Israel continues, you know, to push toward the Egyptian border, what is the latest there? Right. So, you know, as you said, they're, they're get, continue to push toward They haven't started the offensive yet. Um, right. But Israel says it's going to continue that full-scale military operation in Gaza for another six to eight weeks. They mm. think in six to eight weeks they can completely annihilate Hamas. That remains to be seen. I don't I, f- I feel I like everyone can do that. Yeah, I feel like all these leaders think they, they... I think they are definitely underestimating the conviction of the people they are trying to occupy. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's and, with, it happened in Russia, too, because no one thought we'd be two years on to that conflict either. But here we yeah. are just adding more world conflicts every week. <laughs> and and if you see, if you look at the statement from Israel that they're going to keep going for for six to eight weeks. They're going to keep that preparation for the ground offensive in Rafah. What it says to me is March 10th deadline, even if all of the hostages are released after Ramadan, they are still going there. You know, during Ramadan, they're going to plan and prepare for the Rafah offensive. And then after Ramadan, you would likely see the the IDF carry out that offensive. And this is all you know, under the assumption that they that Hamas is going to agree to this ceasefire yeah, by the time yeah, it's March tenth, yeah. you know, which we know this, they won't. I mean, I mean, they're, yeah, they're not. They they've got their own bone to pick, you know. Yeah, and, so, and they're not they're they're not winning the conflict on the ground, but they are. You know, their leadership isn't even in Gaza, so right. The people making the decisions aren't even in harm's way. Um, so why why stop? When I feel like keep... that's the way it is for most conflicts. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, your good, le- your it, your exceptional leaders are on the ground with their troops. I'm t- I'm sorry. I I need to um clarify. I meant like the current conflicts that are kind of sprouting me up. You don't. You actually don't need to clarify because you are right. Poor leadership, even within the U.S. military, right, will you know, stay on their forward operating base and they don't want to, you know, if you remember the movie, The Outpost. Yeah. Yeah. That I was a, a great, um, a great showing of what a bad leader is when you had that one colonel that came in and he said, we're going to shut this thing down in October. And he didn't want to do anything. And he didn't right. leave his office. He didn't leave his, like his office was his bedroom and he, he would never leave. Because, I can relate to that. <laughs> just yeah, stop it. This is totally different. Um, he was, you know, <laughs> not to say that he he was a poor leader because I think that the actual leader of that that actual person mm-hmm. had gone through so much stuff during the conflict that they were just ready. You know, they got that day shut down. Right, but it did get through it. It did show us what a what a poor leader looks like in that situation, where it's like, right. I have the date when I'm going to leave, and I'm just going to try to protect myself and not worry about the troops. Um, and we're seeing that in, in a lot of things. Look at look at Hamas, and that's a, a great correlation to that. Um, but getting back into the IDF, their leadership thinks that they can actually significantly weaken Hamas 
within that six to eight week time frame. Okay. Um, they said that there are discussions about potential measures to safely evacuate civilians, also provide aid to those civilians. So civilians from what side? From Gaza. Okay. So, the civilians from Gaza who are are moving out because the offensive is going on. I feel like um, they should have already implemented these supposedly well, safe evacuation routes for civilians. But okay, sure, and, six days. That's fine. You can wait till then to do that. That's fine. Also, what I, what I what what I want to say yeah, is but. <laughs> anyone who has listened to this podcast, followed mm-hmm. this conflict, mm-hmm. understands you have a right to be skeptical about right. what the IDF says that they're going to be doing. Um, and be skeptical about the feasibility and effectiveness of evacuating civilians safely and providing aid and humanitarian assistance right? Um, because it just has not happened yet. Well, thank you for that very depressing update. Um, as we get closer to Ramadan, I'm sure there will be plenty of updates that happen <laughs> from both sides. Yep. So... Let's dive straight into the big story that has been dominating the headlines this week, and that would be the death of Alexei Navalny, mm-hmm. which, ugh, okay, so obviously this has been a fear long held by Navalny and his supporters and his family and his friends. Like we saw, we watched his family go on stage last year at the Academy Awards and accept the um, Oscar in because um, they won for the documentary about yep. Navalny and they begged for his release. But, you know, you could tell they weren't very hopeful that it would happen. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, they're more pragmatic. They know they understand. Like, yeah, I think that uh, I think his wife always knew he was going to die in that prison. There was no way that Putin was going to let his arch nemesis out. No way. Yeah. Somebody who openly does not agree with him that never works out well correct um can you uh, shed some light on what has transpired and who might be involved and whether we can expect well i mean i wouldn't think so but do you think we can expect any transparency in relation to this investigation or do you think it's just going to be another instance of putin silencing a dissenting voice without any sort of consequence or acknowledgement or accountability, you know, help me out. (laughs) Um, Well, I do want to reiterate that the death of Alexei Navalny is a significant event. It's got broad geopolitical implication. Um, He's been in prison for a while. He had a poisoning in, uh, in 2020. So Navalny was a prominent critic of Vladimir Putin, the Russian president and his regime. Um, so you are correct to express some concerns, uh, that there was suspicions of foul play, that there was foul play. Um, now, as you mentioned, his supporters talked about it for a while. They expressed concern about his safety. First of all, that, especially because of the poisoning that happened in 2020, but they kind of knew he, he was going to die, but it is premature to make a definitive accusation there. That has happened in the white house. Um, I think Joe Biden himself said that he condemned Putin for doing this. Oh, yeah. I think that's a little premature. Yeah. Um, Yeah. When you're talking about geopolitics and and trying to be diplomatic about things, that's just not something you want to say. And I'll leave. It's almost like he shouldn't have been allowed in front of the camera. Uh, We say that a lot, don't we? 
about um, Biden? Yeah. yeah. He's either tripping and falling on his face or he's speaking in gibberish or he's condemning things without all the information. Because he's yeah, and been this is, this open is the point with his of opinions the, a lot lately. And it's not this, really about his opinions. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, and that is what he's doing because he's given the ability to to speak off the cuff. And so what, there's no filter, honestly. Um, anyone who has their grandparents or an older person living with them in a house, there's no filter a lot of times with no. someone over 70. Not, I wouldn't even say over 70. We both watched our dads kind of like their filter like melted away in their 50s, yeah. it seemed like. Well, they weren't getting the steroids that Joe Biden is getting. Yeah, he's a little true. bit better off. Uh, back to the the accusations now. Navalny's wife Yulia has also directly accused Putin of being responsible for her husband's death. So she right. agrees with Biden on that part of it. Well, of course, I'm sure, there's mean... a bunch of people that agree with, with Biden. Um, yeah, and part of me believes the same thing is what happened. Not directly, right. but Putin said, "Get it done now." Yeah, we're also, we shouldn't, also, we shouldn't um, state our opinions unless we have more information on what happened. Yeah, and, you know, all a lot, so, and we point fingers at Joe Biden again, but it's all Western leaders are pointing fingers at the Kremlin. So it's not just the White House, it's not just the U.S. Now, Russian authorities, because I want to put both sides out there and then figure out who's telling the truth later on. Right. But Russian authorities have denied any involvement. They said that Navalny had died from, quote, sudden death syndrome. And that's what leads me to believe it definitely was Putin. Because, I mean, who? <laughs> sudden infant death syndrome, except for adults. What the heck? Well, I mean, die is, randomly? Who, who usually does a, uh, a sudden death syndrome? Putin's usually the one that's. Uh, Carrying like out sudden death. You know, that was, that's on the other podcast where we put out the conspiracy theories. I know, just, we don't I'm say just, that one on this podcast and you have to go try to find it. <laughs> that's the no. conspiracy. You have to try to find it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sudden death syndrome sounds like nonsense. And obviously yeah. doctors all over the world have come out and said there is no such thing as such a condition. Yeah, except for Russian doctors. Yeah, Russian doctors. With a gun to their head. Yeah, gun to their wife's head or their husband's head, maybe. Yep. But yeah. Well, given the secrecy and lack of transparency often associated with such incidents in Russia, can we expect to ever get the whole story? Or is it just going to be everybody throwing accusations out for a while? Well, I mean, history has shown us that getting the full truth especially in cases like this, can be very challenging. And that's across the board. This is not just a Russia thing. Yeah, North Korea is that way. You know, some would say the United States participates in that as well. Um, I mean, stands to reason every other government does it. Why wouldn't we? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But of course, we have the guise of morality. We have right. morality and God in our corner. So We do have the moral high ground. Yes, we always have the moral high ground. We know better than every other country on the planet, even though we're one of the younger countries on the planet. <laughs> right. We're just like our kids. 
That is an excellent point, my friend. Excellent yeah, you made point. the analogy. I just wanted to clarify it. Well, no, no, no. I, I wasn't even going that route. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's like teenage kids. They know they know more than, you know. And if you're a teenage kid listening to this, first of all, what are you doing? And second of all, you know more than your parents because you listen to this podcast. Uh, maybe their parents listen to the podcast, too. Maybe, maybe that, too. Wendy knows more than all of us. That's for sure. Well, I mean, I think all the kiddos that enjoy listening to us drone on and on about such things are all pretty smart because I never would have sat through this. Yeah. If my dad I still don't podcast, sit through it. Yeah, I still don't sit through it. What are we talking about? Kidding. <laughs> Say if my parents put, I'm not kidding. So if our parents or my parents ever put this on, just two a-holes just droning on and on <laughs> about all the world events, I would pitch a fit. I Of that, I am absolutely certain. <laughs> this was not my thing. I did not care about politics. didn't care about what was going on in the world as long as it didn't encroach in uh, in my bubble, like my yeah. personal space. And now look at you. And now look at me. Now I just suffer from existential dread <laughs> constantly. Wake because up. of doing this podcast. Because of doing this podcast. Really. <laughs> Not really, but you know. Um, but we're getting back to the Russian government. Oh, sorry. Tangent. All right. The, the Russian government much like we talked about with other governments, has a track record of suppressing dissent and controlling the narrative within their country. Um, now, it is possible that the investigation into Navalny's death may not yield conclusive results, but we could get some of those read-between-the-lines evidence. Um, but all this is just going to further fuel suspicions of, of a cover-up by the Putin administration. Well, first thing um, the Russian government might want to do is float out an actual medical condition that could have caused a real one to pass away. Yeah, a real one instead of making up a condition that doesn't exist. Yeah. So, I mean, that would help. Maybe they should have, you know, set an actual condition recognized by not necessarily AMA, but, you know, all the medical foundations all over the world. I mean, you, you could know? also give the body to the family which they're not gonna oh, do well, yeah. yeah they already came out and said they're gonna do an, their own internal investigation and they can't right. release the body to the family so. and they probably will only release release his cremains they're not gonna yeah. give, them a, give them a full body so yeah that's a little sketchy as well but okay russia go ahead keep keep this going so i mean where does this leave navalny's supporters and what are the broader implications of his untimely death? Untimely, Darn. but not necessarily unexpected. Right. Yeah. Um, so his death I, I actually has galvanized his supporters. Um, this It's also further strained Russia's relations with the West. Those were already teetering on a disaster. It's gotten worse now because of this. There's calls for justice and accountability. Those calls are growing louder. And that's both domestically within Russia and internationally, because Navalny did have some support within Russia. Uh, we saw, I don't know if you saw it, but there were a lot of reports of hundreds of protesters that were put in prison right after Navalny's death because they came out and protested the death. Um, I saw that um, people are getting 
their draft orders. Yeah. Supporters are getting their draft orders. So so that's another thing Russia's doing um, as they are imprisoning people for being dissidents, mm-hmm. dissenting against the, the Putin regime. As, as soon as they are locked up, they are given orders and they're put on the front line. And they're put at the front of the front line because the point of the matter mm-hmm. is, and this is a historic, this is something historically that, you know, these di- dictatorships have done thousands of years ago. Right. Is you, you get these people, you lock them up, and then you go, hey, you're going to be fir- first on the front line because you want them to die. You, you don't want them surviving anything. Um, yeah. And so, so that is what is going on here. Uh, we talked about the new sanctions on Russia, which I don't think are going to do anything. But Western countries are uh, get they're they're in talks of doing more new sanctions. So um, stupid, and that's like, gonna uh, it's gonna strain relations with Russia. It's it's gonna add another layer to an already complex geopolitical landscape. It's gonna strain relations with. Um, the West's own citizens. Yeah. They're all going, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? And so, I'm, okay. I'm happy about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad people ever... are yeah, speaking out. Yeah, waking up and not just blindly believing everything that's put out there, which I appreciate a great deal yeah. as well. As someone who, I mean, I was in the dark for most of my life, happily and blissfully <laughs> unaware. Are you ready to get back into the dark? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to just crawl back into my hole and stay there. <laughs> I mean, I I definitely, I know we need to focus on what we uh, are talking about here. I mean, I definitely assumed that we weren't going to get very many answers, but mm-hmm. I do hope that there is some sort of resolution to this. And if it was indeed the Putin regime that ordered Navalny to be killed, they should should be held accountable, although I don't see that happening. Um, yeah, I agree with both we, of those statements you just said. I mean, we both know that sanctions aren't going to cut it at yep. all. But because Russia was wilding out this past week, we have another Russia story. So let's keep talking about Russia. Um, we need to get into what they are doing in Africa. What is the latest there? Yeah, so we've talked about this for a long since this podcast started. Um that Russia's engagement in Africa has been evolving rapidly. Um, now it's it's even more rapid because of the dissolution the the dissolution of the Wagner mercenary group. So that has dissolved, and there's an emergence. So those same troops are now part of what's being called the Expeditionary Corps, and they are all in Africa right now. So essentially, it's a shift from private this private mercenary group to state-led Russian Federation operations within Africa. And it's focusing on securing mineral rights in Africa in exchange for what Russia says is a security assistance to those nations. That doesn't seem like a very even trade, if you ask me. But, right. So, I mean, that is a significant shift to Russia's goals in Africa. (laughs) So how exactly does Russia go about securing these mineral rights? Yeah, it's it's complex. Um, first, they're offering what's termed as a uh, what they call a regime survival package 
to African governments. And what basically what that is, is support for political stability in exchange for access to the natural resources. So mm-hmm. we talked in Africa about all the coups that keep happening in those African nations. What Russia is offering is that the regime of that nation can survive those coups with Russia's help. Um, and, and they're saying that this is all going to include assistance in quelling the unrest, um, even military aid to bolster those countries' military. Um, and that's they're, they're going to do that when those regimes face challenges to their authority. So essentially, it's a strategic trade-off for both parties. Yeah. Um, okay, well, what about the implications for all of these African nations involved? Do they feel like they're getting a fair shake here or...? Great question. Um, now, these deals do offer short-term stability. Um, are they recognize? Are they recognizing that the leaders of these countries that are being courted by this? Some are, the, mm-hmm. some aren't. But that is because of a concerted misinformation, a psyop campaign from Russia. We talked about that to get the French out of Africa. Right. Now it's now they're starting to attack the U.S. to get the U.S. troops out of Africa. And so while some of the leaders of these nations might see that this is only short term, um, you know, the, the short term st- stability, the people of those nations are actually seeing Russia as a country that could come in and protect them because they're getting a lot of this misinformation and propaganda um, from Russia. So. Uh, what was your what was your question? Oh, I got it. Sorry. <laughs> um, so the, the short term stability, but it comes at the cost of long term sovereignty, and that's I don't right. think what the leaders are or what the people they are understanding is that you know for the short term they're going to be safe, but Russia is going to take control of those areas yeah, in the long term. Bit by, yeah, bit by bit they're going to start you know. Sp- squeeze in these countries and exerting more control over them for sure and then those countries risk becoming dependent on russian support and that's going to limit their ability to pursue independent foreign policies or negotiate fair terms for their resources because they don't have russia doesn't have to be fair if they're the only player in there right and what about the impact on Western interests in the region? I mean, we've heard about Russia's attempts to dislodge Western companies from strategic... Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, this this move in Africa is seen as a direct challenge to Western influence. Um, that's particularly for sectors like mining um, and the, the resource extraction. So once again, for, for maybe first-time listeners, Africa's rich in resources of, you know, things like uranium. Things that are things that are mined out, or pulled out, or extracted that go into your cell phones and that create the devices that make up your cell phone and your computers, and that's why it's so important. So, by offering alternatives to Western companies and securing control over the critical resources, Russia's aim is to weaken Western leverage, weaken Western economies, and assert itself as a dominant player in the region of the African continent. Well, looking ahead, what are the potential ramifications of Russia um, expanding their footprint in Africa? Well, the the concerns are about like long term implications for global security and stability. So it's not things that are happening right now, but looking into the future. So Russia's actions could exacerbate existing conflicts and rivalries within the African continent, 
that leads to further destabilization in an already destabilized continent, uh, not to mention by gaining control over vital resources like uranium, Russia would wield considerable influence over global energy markets, and that potentially leads to increased tensions, especially with Western powers. Africa is obviously going to remain a key geopolitical player. Uh, I know we will keep talking about all of this maneuvering from the major superpowers throughout the years, so let's get into our next topic, which... This week, the Houthis used an unmanned underwater vehicle for the first time, and I still haven't seen pictures of it, but I can't wait. <laughs> I'll show them to you. <laughs> okay, what was the outcome, and how does this change the conflict, if at all? Like, if it really was a shoebox being pulled through <laughs> water with fishing line, then I imagine it wouldn't change too much, but obviously yeah, that A lot of people were, were just calling it a torpedo. You know, it wasn't wow. even like... This isn't an unmanned underwater, you know, a drone, an underwater drone. It's just a torpedo that you're pulling. <laughs> so there's, yeah, a lot to unpack. Um, now, I would say the, the most notable thing is that just a few days before this incident, CENTCOM intercepted a weapon shipment from Iran to the Houthis in Yemen. And that shipment included components for the underwater unmanned vehicles. Um, so you're asking, like, how does this change things? Well, now you've got Iran shipping these devices, among other things, to the Houthis. Then this obviously directly connects the Houthis' UUV threat to Iranian-supplied vehicles and techniques. Does that get Iran involved directly in the conflict? And does that run the risk of... Does that then have them run the risk of starting a full-scale conflict in the Middle East with their actions? Well, I mean, Iran support. Direct. Yeah, it it, uh, it seems like it, um, but still not enough. It's the same. So it's it's kind of like the same with the U.S. sending weapons to F sixteens. Yeah, F sixteen. So Russia's <laughs> going to keep saying that uh, the U.S. is directly involved, but they understand that in this in the global scale on the global scale, it means nothing. Um, and, and we've well documented all of this support that Iran has for the Houthis. Um, and so so the transfer of this advanced military technology, like you said, the UUVs, um, further complicates Iran, we you know, during these regional tensions, but it doesn't yet get them involved because it's just weapons. Um, and this happens all, all the time. So the answer to whether this involvement directly escalates into a full-scale conflict in the Middle East depends, it's going to depend on various factors. This isn't going to be the factor. Um, It's going to be predicated on the responses of other regional actors. That's particularly true for Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates, who are leading the coalition against the Houthis in Yemen, because the Houthis attack Saudi Arabia and UAE. So any direct escalation by Iran could prompt a response from these countries that will get the U.S. involved, and it could potentially lead to broader regional conflict. So what did these UUVs actually look like? And how were they being used in the conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's it, the ones for the Houthis are very similar to the ones in Iran. They resemble, like I said, torpedoes um, or what are called one-way attack underwater drones. Uh, well, we love some acronyms in the U.S. military, and I think militaries overall. So OWA, AUVs. One-way attack underwater drones. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love a good acronym. 
Love acronyms. Love it. Now, some of the differences between these and the torpedoes that you normally would see is that they have a greater range than torpedoes, but they are slower. Much like a drone is slower than a plane or a a missile. Um, But the reason... So the benefit of this is that they can become effective against static targets like a ship that's in a port or maybe a ship that's anchored. So anything that's static, very good at at attacking those. Um, They, even though I said they look like they had the string and you reel them in, they can be remotely operated. They haven't been. um, And and it's, they're using this wire guidance to engage. So this is how they're engaging the moving targets is by using the wire. They're using wires. Well, I feel like any sort of device like that is better at um it's better at attacking static targets <laughs> so yeah well any device is great at static targets yeah that's why i don't know why that's considered a positive when, i'm a phenomenal when shot with a static and, target yeah me too i'm a phenomenal yeah. shot at static targets especially at close range guided yeah. by wire right when my bullets guided by wire <laughs> okay, I like so, this coverage on This Week Explained. Yeah. So how does the use of UUVs change the dynamics of the conflict in the Red Sea, if at all? So the we've known this for a while. As At least the U.S. Navy has known it for a while. The underwater weapons are going to pose a unique challenge because they're harder to detect on their, on their radars, on their sonar systems. Um, that seems like... That should have been mentioned first. Oh, yeah. The fact that it's better at attacking. I'd like to laugh at it. Targets. <laughs> I don't want to give them the benefit. Um, so I put this I put this at the end here. Okay. <laughs> right. But Buried that lead, buddy. Yeah, they, they these devices, they are a threat. They really are as much fun as I'm poking at these yeah. devices. Yeah, um, obviously. They can surprise their targets. They can cause damage below, this is the most important part, damage below the waterline. Um, that's particularly devastating. Uh, you, you know, ships, what ships, when they take in water, what do they do? They sink. Right. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't let you answer. <laughs> I asked the question and didn't let you answer. Um, so it just adds a layer of complexity. Uh, and that's very true for these warships that are escorting all of these civilian ships out in the Red Sea. Um, and so it kind of necessitates a different tactic for countering these devices. Thank you for that comprehensive update to the conflict. It is now time for our final topic, and it's one that we have been warning of for over a year now, and that is the improving relations between China, Russia, and North Korea. Okay, so what is the latest here and what are the overall overarching implications of this very scary alliance? Yeah, so it's a it's a tripartite alliance, which just means it's three countries aligning with each other. And those countries are China, Russia and North Korea. It's been a growing concern, just like you said, we've talked about it for over a year now. But these recent developments, we've seen a deepening of military cooperation between North Korea and Russia. We're talking about all those weapons that North Korea has sent out to Russia to just fail on the battlefield. And it's particularly the the joint effort of all of those against what they perceive as a common adversary. That common adversary is the United States. Well, could you give us some specifics on how this cooperation is manifesting? 
yeah, um, the, we've we've witnessed exchanges of military supplies between Russia and North Korea, um, and then Russia providing advanced weaponry and technology to North Korea, like missile systems, the, the spy satellite, um, equipment for ballistic missile production. Then in return, North Korea has been aiding Russia in its conflict in Ukraine by supplying artillery shells. Uh, China has just been sitting back and enjoying all of this. Well, that's um, certainly concerning. So how does China fit into this picture if they're busy sitting back watching everybody else take over? Yeah, so it was just a joke there for for everybody listening. But because China's role is pivotal, you know, I I was just making a joke because there's a lot of talk about Russia and North Korea. Um, But you bring up a good point here. Uh, China is historically aligned with Russia and against the West, but tensions have been increasing by the day due to you know differing priorities and and then China's reluctance to directly support Russia's military endeavors has had has put China in a bad spot with Russia so they're they're trying to ease back in to being a supporter of Russia with, so that's but really still, but still not kind of getting their hands yeah China still doesn't want to get their their hands dirty but that's what has facilitated North Korea into this tripartite uh, because all of what China has been doing or not doing to support Russia led to a situation where Russia sought support from North Korea which brought them in which then just further complicates everything within the Indo-Pacific the South China Sea you know, the Korean Peninsula all of that well what are the implications of this alliance. Yeah, well, it poses a significant challenge to the United States first. The the U.S. allies, um, especially in the Indo-Pacific, it undermines efforts to deter aggression. Um, and those the aggressions are within regions like Eastern Europe. We didn't do a good job there deterring that aggression. The Korean Peninsula, I don't think U.S. allies are doing a good job deterring aggression within the Korean Peninsula. And we're absolutely not doing a good job of deterring aggression within the South China Sea. <laughs> All of this threatens to destabilize the balance of power uh, across the board, Northeast Asia, the, the South China Sea. And then, you know, you got North Korea's growing military capabilities. That's getting bolstered by Russian support. Um, and it could embolden Kim Jong-un and his sister for to do further aggressive actions in the region. I'd say yes. Yeah. So all <laughs> yes. of that. Okay, well, since it's such a concern, what do you think can be done to address this situation, this alliance getting tighter by the day? Yeah, the deterrence we're seeing is not working. So the U.S. and its allies are going to have to navigate this carefully and hopefully diplomatically. Um, so it starts with, with sanctions. Well, yeah, more sanctions. Um, right. I think it starts with exploiting divisions within that alliance. So we talked about China not really doing their fair share. We talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, do your fair share. Um, The U.S. could really do good in exploiting that. And then they also need to do a great job of strengthening partnerships with regional actors in the Indo-Pacific. So if you can rally all the allies and deepen defense cooperation um, in response to these threats from China, from North Korea and from Russia, and that's like things that are happening within the, the with the U.S. and the Philippines. The Philippines want a U.S. base on their island. 
the United States can then work to counterbalance the influence of what we would call this autocratic bloc of countries, China, North Korea, and Russia. Now, I firmly believe China, Russia, and North Korea represents a significant challenge to global stability and security. I'm sure everybody listening agrees with that. Um, but right now, the geopolitical landscape is undergoing profound shifts. Uh, the implications are far-reaching. They're complex. Uh, the evolving dynamics between these nations highlight the importance of strategic foresight, which I don't think the U.S. has right now and their allies don't have. Um, also, diplomatic engagement, which is what I would press in, a, in addressing these emerging threats. And then, honestly, we've got to start promoting peace on around the globe. Well, thank you, Kervin. Is that all for this week? That's it for me, unless you had anything you wanted to add or are you just hungry? Because oh, I know I, I am. All I can think about is food yeah, yeah. and the next garbage movie we shall watch. <laughs> Yeah, so if you fun. if you made it this far and you want to know what movies we're watching, we're not saying it here. Yeah, we're not. But you saying can it here always message us, like, <laughs> and I will fill you in to all the garbage movies we have been watching. I have been, I've had tears pouring out of my eyes. I've been laughing so hard. Yeah, it's your been com- mainly it's your commentary that's making me laugh. <laughs> you make it have so some much great better. Commentary. Oh yeah, but you're like extra funny. <laughs> I have to try. I have to dig a little deep to say. I don't something think like you do. I do. <laughs> you were you had some bangers. <laughs> I don't even remember what. I don't know. I don't even know what movie we're talking about because they're all just swirling in my head mm. and just this tornado of. B-list acting and low budgets. <laughs> the waft of B-list acting. Though actually B-list is being kind. That's true. Because, yeah, anyways, we can't, we're not going down that road. We're not going to Well, speaking talk. of movies, um, mm-hmm. the new preview to Civil War came out, and you know who's on the front of that new preview? Let me guess. Let me guess. Is your buddy, is your buddy on there? Is your yep, buddy on friend there? of the podcast. Uh, when is that movie coming out again? Uh, April, I think. April what? 15th. Okay. Let's see here. Okay. Oh, we're going to watch it. Oh, I know. I know. You've been revved up for a while about that. Maybe movie. it's maybe it's the 19th. It's something like that. That's all right. I mean, oh, we're yeah, a crappy but... friend for not having this marked on the calendar and memorized already, but That is true. You know, it's fine. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. Um, Jeff. He is a prominent figure in the new preview. Um Okay. So... Well, I, I haven't watched, watched it yet. I just saw the the screenshots of it. So oh, okay. We'll watch it after this. Okay. Well, fine. I'm hungry. I need right. food. <laughs> Is that all you want? <laughs> Is that all you wanted to add, or I wanted to wrap it up with okay. <laughs> curve and wrap it up. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to our tiny little humble geopolitical podcast. We hope you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwin Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.